The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndicate Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, this is our first show of the new year, the year of the tiger. I want to wish everybody a happy Chinese New Year or a happy Lunar New Year, depending on where you are in the world. It's been very quiet out here in Vietnam as everybody is stuffing themselves and watching lots of TV. All the stores are closed. Everybody's taking a well-deserved rest. So again, we want to wish everybody a happy New Year as well. And also a big thank you to our Patreon community, all of our Patreons giving us wonderful support. We've got some more Zoom calls coming up and we do a weekly digest that goes out every Friday. If you would like to join our Patreon community, you can go to patreon.com slash China Africa Project. Our next big event coming up on Patreon is we're going to introduce our Patreon members to our new team members who are running our Francophone and our new Arabophone sites. Our new Arabic and French sites are coming out, so we're going to introduce our Patreon members to those editors coming up well before everybody else. So if you'd like to join that, again, patreon.com slash China Africa Project. Also, just before we get started in today's show, I want to give a shout out to uh, one of our followers on Twitter, Mark Hoffer, who called me out, actually, for a comment that I made last week about Chinese sanctions and the fact that they hate sanctions. And he rightfully pointed out that the Chinese may hate sanctions from the United States and the United Nations, but they are more than comfortable at dishing out sanctions of their own. And he pointed out that right now, the secondary sanctions against Lithuania because of Vilnius permitting Taiwan to open up a representative office is a great example of their use of sanctions. Also, the fact that China has thrown all sorts of sanctions against Australia for a number of different reasons. And back in 2010, the Chinese were very quick to sanction Norway for the Nobel Prize Committee's award of the Peace Prize to Liu Xiaobo. So again, absolutely right. Thank you, Mark, for keeping us honest and for pointing out the hypocrisy of China criticizing U.S. sanctions when, in fact, it does the same thing. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about infrastructure, loans, financing, debt. It has been a really interesting week in this space. I want to point everybody's attention to the folks at Bloomberg who have just published another one of their stories in the Congo holdup investigation. Remember, we had William Klaus and Michael Kavanaugh from Bloomberg on the show back in December. They've just published another report, this time about a public-private partnership road that was built, and it shows you the interesting dynamics of corruption and infrastructure. So we're going to try and provide more details on that maybe in the next couple weeks when we focus on the DRC. But today we're going to focus on Nigeria and also what's going on in Kenya and the discussion that's going on around the world right now about infrastructure. And Kobus, we wrote a story earlier this week about Nigerian Transportation Minister Rotimi Amechi, who what I described as saying the quiet part out loud. Here's a quote that he gave to Nigeria's The Guardian newspaper. He said, quote, 
We are stuck with lots of our projects because we cannot get the money. The Chinese are no longer funding. Now, this is a a truth that we have known for quite some time in this space because we've been following what the folks at Boston University's Global Development Policy Center have been tracking as well, that loans from the two major policy banks, that's the China Development Bank and the China Exim Bank, have cratered going back to 2016, starting at $75 billion back then. Then three years later, it went down to just $4 billion. And what we've seen in Africa is since the Standard Gauge Railway, they have lost the appetite for funding big multi-billion dollar infrastructure projects. And it looks like Amechi is just now acknowledging that. He is the first major minister to do so, to be so blunt about it, and that the good days of easy access to Chinese capital are now over. I guess. I mean, you know, it's on the one hand, I, I agree with you that that obviously the the Chinese Exim Bank and Chinese Development Bank funding has has created, and it it is, I think, useful for African politicians to acknowledge that. On the other hand, the, that lending came with a ton of debt, you know, kind of that Africa is now trying to deal with, and it's also not a hundred percent true that the financing has stopped. It's more that the financing has shifted. You know, they are there. It's it's shifted to other to other Chinese lenders. And it's also shifted in scale, you know. So, so as you say, the kind of multi multi billion dollar projects that had multi decade, you know, return of investment horizons, tend to they seem to be over for a while anyway. Um, and you know, and, and but but in what we're seeing instead is smaller projects, but also an, an expansion of projects um, and an expansion of, of of lenders. So it's 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 not that the that the Chinese are are withdrawing from the infrastructure game. It's that so the infrastructure landscape itself is shifting. That's right. It's definitely a new era in Chinese infrastructure financing in Africa and around the world. As you pointed out, Cobus, it has not gone away. Now the loans are in the tens of millions and in the low hundreds of millions of dollars. They are focused on projects that have much tighter feasibility studies, a much faster path to return on investment. So toll-based projects, fee-based projects, things like data centers, mobile networks, toll roads that generate revenue much faster and that also can be incorporated into new funding models like the equity stake for the Lecky port in Lagos, which the China Harbor Engineering Company took a $220 million equity stake in, or the Nairobi Expressway, the half a billion dollar Nairobi Expressway, I should point out, built by the China Road and Bridge Corporation in the Kenyan capital that will be repaid with tolls. So lots of new models, lots of innovations. Let's get some perspectives today on infrastructure, financing, what's going on in Nigeria specifically. And for that, we are thrilled to have on the show our old friend Ovigwe Egu Egu, who is a policy analyst at Development Reimagined. Ovigwe is normally based in Nigeria, but today he joins us from the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. A very good afternoon to you, Ovigwe. Yeah, good afternoon, and thank you for inviting me to on the show. It's wonderful to have you on the show. We've been a longtime follower and fan of your work. By the way, everybody, if you'd like to see some of Ovigwe's earlier China-Africa writings, we've got it on the site. He's done some excellent work for us. I'll put those links in the show note. Ovigwe, you've been closely following the comments of Transportation Minister Rotimi Amechi. Help us provide some context to what he meant when he said the Chinese are no longer funding, and what are the implications for Nigeria? Yeah, I think, first of all, that, that comment is largely an expression of uh, the Nigerian government's frustration you know, with uh, 
with China in terms of infrastructure financing because you would recall and going back to when President Buhari came into office, he made a lot of big promises to deliver on, on projects uh, that have been long stand that we, the country has had proposals for, for instance, like uh, Mambila hydro power plant. And uh, there's also, also other big projects like AKK pipeline. And then there, uh, there's Lagos Canoe Expressway that has about 800, you know, Kilometer gaping hole that not, not nothing you know, is still you know being be, uh, be, the work has not com be completed. So of course the it's election next year, and um, the government of course is looking at these projects you know not just in terms of their economic uh, impact and how they can drive in economic productivity and, and development, but also as a report card. Right. So if you if you look if you in, in Nigeria and you know that we're in full election mode, the conventions are, co are coming and delegates are going to be asking questions to, you know, uh, to the, the ruling party and all of the, the cabinet members. What have you done in the last, you know, uh, four years? I mean, if you count the first tenure, eight, eight years in terms of all of these promises that, that, that you've made. So I think one, one aspect that needs to, you know, help that, that will help contextualize what uh, uh, Honorable Mr. Ruti Amici was talking about is just, just the fact that several of these projects that they hoped at least would have gotten to an advanced stage or even completed by the time uh, by by uh, by the time Buhari's eight year uh, you know uh, runs out are still not be, be delivered and not just the fact that they're not being de delivered. You know, we, we don't even know when and if these projects are going to, you know, to be delivered. So that, that, that's uh, both, like I said, you know, uh, the, the sense of frustration and also this, you know, uh, lack of, um, I would say, uh, you know, a lack of awareness of the future, of what, what, what the future re really holds, because they know that other partners might not be by, by very unlikely to actually commit the kinds of funds that you know that the Nigerian government is looking at is, is looking at. For instance, you're talking about uh, railway connectivity in southern Nigeria, and the price tag is about eleven point one billion dollars. Where on earth is Nigeria going to get that, that amount of money from? So I think that's that's something that uh, the Nigerian government, particularly the infrastructure minister, they have you know to keep thinking about and and, and right now it just doesn't seem uh, from of course from the studies you, you cited and also all of the trends we're looking that you know ch uh, China at the moment wants to part away with those kind of large amount of amount of money. Maybe if uh, if we go back to the FOCAC docu uh, document, the action plan, there was real uh, uh, words and commitments in terms of concessional financing, but it's it just do doesn't seem as easy as it used to be in the past, and that's you know the kind of uh, reality that the Nigerian government and several African governments you know now have to face. Speaking of FOCAC, I just um, that just reminded me that Uvigwe and his colleague Ikefu from um, from Development Reimagined did uh, like fantastic writing for SIA last year, like unpacking some of the issues around FOCAC. So that's that's up on the SIA website, um, and yeah, really worth reading. Ovigwe, following up on that, so so where, where does this leave Nigeria's, you know, kind of railway dreams? You know, is, is it is was the the underlying kind of implication of of the minister's comments that like that Nigeria is going to have to give up on some of these plans, or are there are there kind of ways other ways forward? I, I know that Nigeria has been has been um, shopping these projects around European finances as well, but but I'm not sure with, with how much success. I think when we're talking about Nigeria's financing plan, one of the major things that needs to 
coming to, into that discussion is do we really have a financing strategy like do we have a strategy to to attract financing whether from china you know or for europe and if you read the, the article you mentioned in the guardian you know the the uh, infrastructure minister was saying we are now looking you know to europe to get financing for these projects what do you mean by europe like are you referring to European Development Bank, Infrastructure Development Bank? Are you referring to, you know, like commercial lenders? Are you who exactly are you are you trying to? Are you going to meet in Europe? Europe is not one entity. So the fact that there is no specificity around alternative just goes to show that the government lacks a strategy in terms of you know, fi financing. Because if we do have alternatives, he would not just say Europe. He would go specifically to list, you know, exactly who in Europe, for instance, we're going to, you know, get the financing from. So maybe he's looking at the global gateway and that, that, is, that has aroused some form, a lot of excitement on the continent, even, in, even uh, in, in Abuja, because, of course, the issue of, you know, we having alternative uh, financing partners has been one of, like, the major uh, demand calling on Western, Western lenders, credit, creditors to step up. Uh, but... That that's not uh, that that's not it's not exactly clear if it's exactly the glo global gateway which the European Union and European countries are push uh, and talking about. That's what the the finance uh, the infrastructure minister means by Europe, or maybe he's talking about you know bilaterals like maybe you want you you want to approach the the UK for instance or France or, or Germany to say give us money for infrastructure. And if we're looking by recent history, uh, that's very unlikely. So I think. In terms of where we're going to go forward or how we're going to go forward when it comes to financing, what the Nigerian government really needs to do and one gap it needs to close is to really come out, at least develop a very clear you know, financing strategy. And when that, when that strategy is in play, I don't think we'll, we'll, we will be talking with the kind of language we're, we're, talk, we're hearing from the government today, but what you see will be more action, more announcements, you know, more direct engagement from Nigeria and, of course, and that, uh, the partners that they have in, in mind. Well, if they are going to count on Europe for that funding, which is, again, what they said, as you rightfully pointed out in the Guardian article, they're going to have to be very patient because it looks like the plans for Europe to finance infrastructure as part of Global Gateway that they wanted to announce before the February 17th Europe-Africa summit have run into some problems. Germany apparently is balking, saying that some of the project plans are not set yet. Hungary, Portugal, and Finland are also not on board. France, who has the rotating presidency right now, is trying to get everything sorted before the 17th. But Ovigwe, as you pointed out, Europe is a giant entity. So just saying Europe is really going to be problematic simply because getting all member states on board for this might take some time. Let's do something now very fun. And I'm really glad that I've got the both of you here. All, let's see, January and even into last week, there's just been a flurry of webinars and conferences and news all focused on China-Africa infrastructure. And I'm going to start in Kenya, but then we're going to go to the United States and we're going to hear from lots of different stakeholders from across Africa. And I've got these sound bites, and I've been quoting these sound bites in our daily newsletter and our China-Africa brief that goes out to our subscribers, but I thought it would be fun to extract some of these sound bites 
play them for you guys and have you riff off of them, okay? First, let's go to Nairobi. Joe Machiro, who is the Cabinet Secretary for the Ministry of Information, Communication, and Technology. He's an outspoken politician, a really fun guy to watch. And uh, he's really a, a very passionate advocate for transparency and making information available to the public. In fact, it's his office that created the tenders.co.ke portal, which is a model for all developing countries on how to make government procurement contracts available to the public. So you go to tenders.co.ke, you type in the contract, and there is everything you want to know. If it's in your neighborhood, if you want to see the terms, the interest rates, it's amazing. By the way, that's also in accordance with Kenyan law. However, there is one contract in particular that is not on tenders.co.ke, and that is the $3.2 billion standard gauge railway contract with the China Exim Bank. Muchero, he is now the third high-ranking Kenyan government official to insist that the standard gauge railway contract remain secret and not available for the public to view. If you guys recall from last year we started talking about this, Attorney General Kihari Karuki, he said a lawsuit that's now before the Mombasa High Court brought by two civil society activists is, and these are his words, incurably defective. And he called on the court to dismiss what he described as a, quote, frivolous case. Okay, that's excuse number one. Excuse number two came from Kenya's transportation minister, uh, Joseph Njorge, and he said that revelations of the contract's details would, and again, this is a quote, endanger national security and injure foreign relations. Okay, that's excuse number two. Now, Muchero last week appeared on the nationally televised morning radio show, The Situation Room on Spice FM, and he was asked by host Eric Latif about the SGR contract and why the government is refusing to publicize the details when it's doing so with all the other procurement agreements. Let's listen into that conversation, and then Ovigwe and Kobus, I'd like to get your reaction. It's In fact, there's a, even a case in court. We've been saying we want to get the, the details of the SGR contracts. And we'd like to know what exactly uh, the details of that contract are. But still, unable to get it. Um, so, so how, how, how do you answer? You, you know the government itself, just like yourself. There are contracts that you sign that, that say uh, this is confidential, this is national security. There are all those uh, levels. Mm -hmm. And even in the access to information law, they are all those requirements. So, for instance, if, uh, and this is hypothetical, I have not seen that contract, mm. but if we were given a better deal than another country, and China doesn't want that country to know, and then we go and we publicize it everywhere, then nobody will ever give us any information. Because then even us, we can't keep secrets as a country. Mm. What, what, yeah. did we, what did we do to get a better deal? Maybe that's the, that's the detail that no, we want so, to know. So I'm, I, me, I'm not uh, saying that that's the case. Oh, we I'm know. just it's saying hypothetical. That, that, you know, those could be the reasons why Kenya has agreed with the China or whoever it is that some of these things should be kept uh, secret. Ovigwe, I mean, that is literally got to be the worst excuse <laughs> and the worst hypothetical I've ever seen. If you get a better deal, and what happens if China knows? And as Eric Latif pointed out, well, that's a thing that I think the Kenyan public would want to know. But there you have it. Three different senior level officials, two ministers, three excuses as to why the SGR contract needs to stay secret. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, well, for me, I think the responsibility to 
to transparency lies with the national government, right? Because every so often, when we're talking about the issue of responsibility of uh, transparency, you know, China gets dragged into the the conversation. Um, from my understanding, that that China no, sets the set, sets the you know sets its terms and go into 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 negotiations. And if those nego- those negotiations, the if the national law requires transpar- transparency, of course, the Chinese. Don't have they don't they can't tell the government you, you can you shouldn't obey a national law to, to obey uh, to move ahead with your trans- transparency require uh, you know uh, commitment to your, to your citizens so I think the issue with in Kenya or the SGR in, in particular slowly slowly it has really become clear that it is the government of Kenya that has the responsibility to publish you know loan uh, agreement the borrower has responsibility not 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 the the creditor and it's good that that's that's the conversation we're having now that's uh, for a start but specifically with the SGR um, or even just, just about any uh, state you know uh, contract for that matter if a government actually has a in clause in in a particular deal that it, it shouldn't it should not uh, publish the, the the full agreement or the contract. I think that's 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 a problem that needs to be uh, to be addressed. And by my understanding, again, Kenyan law requires the government to publish all of its all of its contracts. So what the government of Kenya can do, for instance, is publish the 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 contract. But if certain parts are very sensitive, quote unquote, for their national security, you can redact that out of of, of the publication. At the end of the day, people know all of the terms, but whatever is specific to national security, and that is not, it's actually for the government to decide, which is, weirdly enough, that's the case, the government and the state decide what is national you know, security. If the public still wants, then, of course, they can activate the attorney general and say, well, pop, let's, let's see everything on un, redacted. Every government in the world has the ability or even the attitude of keeping certain you new know, things secret. That's why every so often we see in the US, for instance, they say a president is coming into power and they promise to publish, you know, previously classified, you know, uh, of uh, documents. So, uh, and if Kenya, for instance, has a period of say maybe 10 years or 15 years after a project, you must publish everything unredacted. That that could also stay here. But in my, from my perspective as a Nigerian, uh, uh, my understanding of the SGR and even international negotiations, if the national law requires the government to publish a contract, then the government ought to publish that contract. But if in the contract it reached certain agreements that are sensitive to its national interest or national security, then those specific you know, clause you know, uh, should, uh, can be redacted. And that's just my opinion of, of, the, of the situation. Kobus, you wrote about this subject this week in a column specifically about the issue of Cabinet Secretary was saying. What's your take on it? Well, you know, kind of this this comes in, uh, you know, in, in the wake of a lot of discussion internationally about about loan transparency, and you know, a lot of a lot of that criticism has, has gone to China. But as you know, as a lot of lending experts that we've spoken with have pointed out, that as lo- many loan contracts from Western lenders are just as you know, just as opaque, and in in many cases, China actually uses Western law as a basis to to make their 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 contracts more opaque. So you know, th- this is a big problem, and uh, 
the particularly in 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 a in a case you know like like in in South Africa recently like who which is which is going through this kind of massive kind of investigation into into official corruption during the the Jacob Zuma era um this you know it it really it's very corrosive in terms of 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 breaking down trust between the population and the state you know so 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 it it really is kind of good for everyone if if these loans are are, are publicized and, and particularly also if 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 all kind of government loans are, are are then kind of also stored in some kind of shared database. So the Bretton Woods Committee, which is this very high level kind of like you know kind of I guess it's difficult to say how the, how to you know the like very prominent kind of economists and and you know kind of academics and and former bank presidents and so on you know that that um, that that kind of do kind of basically blue sky thinking for the Bretton Woods institution. So so the World Bank and the the IMF um, they recently published the. the this report in which they they put forth a whole bunch of of of, of suggested reforms to to boost transparency, um, and and it makes for really interesting reading. Some of some of those reforms would be very interesting and very like would definitely make a, a difference. Like for example, they they suggested having having the, the the full disclosure of 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 government lending linked to the the rating of that that economy by ratings agencies like the you know kind of like S&P for example so you know so 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 all of those are, are are really interesting but but you know it also has these kind of fatal flaws among others that they that they suggested that um that all of this that that the 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 kind of platform for for housing all of these loan contracts you know and making them all public should be the OECD which i think would immediately kind of like you know draw lots of suspicion from China and probably would make Chinese actors like the state banks for example not want to participate so you know I see so so it's, it's at the same time we're in this moment where all of this stuff is being discussed but it's also at a moment where I think it still is very much you know kind of skewed in terms of Western institutions wanting to police the transparency of everyone else without doing these kind of fundamental um, reforms you know, of their own legal systems that frequently enable some of this transparency to happen like so there's a lack of transparency to happen and it's so interesting that that Bretton Woods committee report came out the same week and in the same month that there's just again as I mentioned at the top of the show just been a flurry of discussion in think tanks and at policy seminars and in the media as well. And, and normally the discussion of this in the U.S. media is so reductionist, like what we saw with Trevor Noah on The Daily Show and his BS take on China and Africa. And, you know, I've ranted on that in previous shows, so I won't start on that one again. But there was a really great discussion. If you want to hear what it sounds like when Americans actually get serious to talk about this, go check out National Public Radio's Studio 1A program. And they interviewed uh, Professor Deborah Braudigam, Professor Anita Plummer from Howard University, and our friend Jude Moore from the Center for Global Development, and they did a half-hour show that was just fantastic on the topic. And now I'd like to play a couple sound bites for from you guys again, talking about the discourse in the United States, where there is a lot of anxiety right now about Chinese infrastructure spending, the Belt and Road, China in general. Uh, so let's go over to Palo Alto, California at Stanford University. And there was a seminar that was held by the Hoover Institute there featuring uh, Jendai Fraser. Now, Jendai is a former assistant secretary of state for African affairs, which made her basically the top diplomat for Africa during the George W. Bush administration. She's very well known in the U.S. policy space through her work at the Council on Foreign Relations and also at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Last month, Hoover 
held a webinar entitled China's Sharp Power in Africa, where Jen Dai spoke about the concerns about the very issue that Joe Machiro's comments arise regarding the lack of transparency in China's infrastructure development finance mechanisms in Africa. You'll also hear in her comments the real angst that a lot of U.S. stakeholders have today about the Chinese in Africa and whether they're even up to meet the challenge. Often when we think about China and its economic footprint in Africa, we do think about it as a positive towards development. Uh, You know, obviously the continent needs infrastructure development to grow. And so we sort of debate this thing at a 60,000 foot perspective saying, well, China's doing good because it's bringing infrastructure. African countries want the Chinese to invest because, you know, the West aren't actually filling that a gap and local companies don't yet have the capacity at scale to fill that need of great infrastructure development. But what your papers do is really allow us to dig into the nature of the relationships and dig into the nature of the infrastructure uh, development project. I like to call it China's debt financing development approach in Africa. Uh, and really look at the modus operandi and with greater nuance and a critical eye about how, in fact, China is moving so rapidly and what impact that has uh, on society, on the relationship between local or national stakeholders and their government, the relationship between China and these African countries, and then really on the international standards for financing these infrastructure, whether whether digital or transportation infrastructure projects. The subsidies that are coming from the Chinese government to support often state-owned enterprises and that the nature of those contracts are often unsolicited. And so these projects, which are being pushed by Chinese companies onto these national governments that don't necessarily reflect national priorities, Um, I think is really something that needs to be paid attention to, as well as the single source procurement, non-competitive single source procurement, and the time loans, so that if the Chinese government gives a loan, then you also have to use Chinese contractors, which again undermine local uh, contracting companies and, of course, is unfair competition. And then finally, confidentiality clauses, increasing that Uh, non-transparency. And so really the opacity of the the contracts and of the financing arrangements for these big infrastructure projects are leading to, in fact, deeper corruption um, and opportunities for corruption. And so corrupting of uh, officials um, in these societies. It also, I think, speaks to the nature of the relationship between a Chinese government and the African governments in that there's a tremendous asymmetry, right? There's a, a tremendous asymmetry when most of the financing for these projects are coming from Chinese-owned uh, banks, and these governments are taking it in with all of these clauses which aren't being open to the public, aren't being debated, they don't have as much negotiating power over them, and the Chinese government has this fine print where they can just cancel the contracts. And so that brings, I think, significant pressure. 
So she referenced two papers that her other panelists delivered, and we're going to hear from one of those other panelists shortly. Uh, sorry that the, the sound bites are rather long, but I really want to give these experts and these stakeholders the breadth and the time to be able to express their opinions on, on these issues so that, Ovigwe, you can tell us what did you hear in Jen Dai's statement and the, the anxiety that she has about the nature of Chinese engagement in Africa when it comes to infrastructure financing. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, first of all, I think the, she's asking good questions, you know, in term, in, in, which from, a, from a U.S. perspective, because uh, if you look at leading think tanks or even scholars in the U.S. and when, when they discuss these issues, it's always one of two things. So you have um, people like uh, Deborah Brautingham that really provide the nuance and say, for instance, this confidentiality issue is not exclusively Chinese, but that has been a long-standing industry standard, right? And the response to that is, okay, so even if that, even if the Chinese are following the U.S. standard, that doesn't make it right. And, that, and to a large extent, that is true, because if even if, if A does something bad and B is is doing some uh, something bad then b is just as as culpable that doesn't that doesn't mean we can't we can't have a different system we can't have a more transparent system and it goes back to what uh, the the you know what cobos uh, was saying about in the new app uh, new uh, submission from uh, what i can't remember the organization he mentioned again that is trying to change the rules on how or new frameworks on how international uh, financing you know is done but one of my problem with the us's position or U.S. experts' position on this issue is they do not have skin in the game in the sense that it is not the U.S. that is taking out these loans. It is not U.S. citizens that have to repay these loans. It is Africans that are taking these, these, these loans through their, through, their, through their government. So they do not have a, you know, a position to explain to us what, uh, what should be our attitude going into engagement you know, with China. A lot of times, you know, we talk about democracy. We've elected these officials. If we can trust these officials to develop fine documents like Agenda 2063, why can't we trust them you know, to, to you know, reach sensible agreements on behalf of you know, their citizens? But in many cases, we don't trust our leader, leaders in these negoci negotiations because we don't trust the system that, leads, that gives us these leaders. We don't trust our democratic processes. We don't trust our elections, and of course, we don't. Tr and by extension, we do, we doubt the the competency and the well, I would say the you know the way not only the way we talk, but also the position that these um, these leaders hold when they're in conversation. Second, uh, secondly, uh, from my perspective, is many of the central bank leaders or finance ministers, these are former IMF people, former World Bank you know, experts, when they go into this into these, these negotiations, uh, there's also this concern that, of course, you are a minister today, you definitely would be out of office in four, in four, year, in four years. The, the attitude that they go into those negotiations with, is it one where they, they are going to think about their own future and say, okay, when I'm out of office... Am I am I going to get consulting gigs? Am I going to get you know, you know juicy positions? You know if I hold certain position attitude towards the IMA, for instance, or towards China. So many of the problems that the U.S. has with Chinese, or I mean, it seems to have with China-Africa relations, particularly when it comes to lending, 
Africans ourselves, we hold these fears as well. We hold these this suspicions as well. It is just the fact that when you do not have great alternatives, you want to be very careful by, by, by when you're dealing with the only with the, what seems like the only big option you have. And it's not as if you know we don't know these things. I mean, from my perspective, I, I've I've been very privileged to to talk to some people to some people who who have engaged you know in, with whether bilaterals or uh, multilaterals in terms of you know of um, in terms of financing and it's very clear it, it, the main problem africa really faces and that's what the us side is not capturing is that there is a real concern about what are you going to bring to the table if we start taking up some of these you know some of these issues and even when the us is coming up with you know, b3w and global gateway it still isn't clear what exactly they want to do with global gateway we don't we don't we don't know what the european union had years to prepare for the summit for, for next for next uh, next two weeks they postponed the 2020 2021 with covid and all of that now it's happening in 2022 and even next uh, next two weeks they are still unprepared so what have they been doing all this time how can you really build trust in africa in african governments or in africans that europe can actually meet these challenges when in two years you can't even get to act together to say this is the deal we are going to present to Africans, or this is our position on these issues, or what we are going to offer you Africans. Look at it and tell us if you want if you want to move with us. Yeah, I a thousand percent agree. The um, the, the 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 issue of the, of of the US not having skin in the game, you know, it's it's so true because it's also. It's, you know, so so they, they don't have skin in the game in relation to, to the loans and the people having to pay the loans back, but they also have no experience of having to live with the lack of that infrastructure. They have no experience of, of, of what it means for the lives of people and the economy to, for example, have no no kind of like efficient connection between two major cities, you know, or being stuck in traffic for eight hours at a time or, or you know, all of those problems. So, you know, so so it's kind of, it, it's very frustrating for me when, when frequently when West and commentators are so okay with underdevelopment, with systemic underdevelopment, and you know, um, and then you know, kind of cast a lot of suspicion, sometimes warranted suspicion, on, on on the particular kind of infrastructure that's being planned to solve that problem, but with zero kind of interest in the problem itself. Um, you know, so so that that is upsetting. Also, you know, kind of as as, as she pointed out, yes, after the 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 power relationship is extremely asymmetric, but that is the the reality, the existential reality of being Africa in the world. Africa's power relationship with everyone is asymmetric, and that and that is one of the reasons why the the China Africa relationship happened in the first place is because you know, kind of like you would have. You know, African African countries, you know, decade in and decade out, had to deal with how much quote interest a, a particular administration in Washington or in Europe has in them. Like what particular form that interest takes, like how how it's filtered through whatever kind of Cold War and post Cold War strategic strategic preoccupations they were. You know, so for example, you have a situation where the World Bank. Is for a while, you know, for in, you know, in the in the sixties and seventies, interested in hard infrastructure, and then at some stage there's a, this kind of change of heart, and the you know, kind of it does there's there's a kind of a new way, a new wind kind of blowing through the World Bank, and suddenly it's now infrastructure's passe, you know? So then the countries just have to be like, okay, well, I guess no infrastructure then, you know? So it's, it's, it's that kind of, that kind of like power, power dynamic has, has, has characterized Africa's relationship with the world throughout history. 
And you know, it's for, so for now, for Western commentators to suddenly be like suddenly waking up to that reality now is is a bit dumb for me. Kobus, you brought up the Bretton Woods Committee report earlier in the program, and it seems like this is again a call for the Chinese to play by the rules set up by the OECD and by the traditional partners. And one of the frustrations that we hear over and over again from the U.S. and from Europe is that China isn't playing by the rules. Even in the G20 with the debt service suspension initiative, even though China was living by the letter of the law and the letter of the agreements, they were not living by the spirit of it because they weren't communicating with other members of the G20 about the different debt restructuring deals and debt deferrals that they were doing with various African countries. So this is a criticism that we hear over and over again is that they're playing by a different set of rules. We hear this in the contracts as well, the widespread use of commercial loans made by policy banks. This is something that is very, very upsetting and foreign to U.S., European, Japanese lenders, where concessional loans traditionally come out of the policy banks, not commercial loans. The use of offshore parastatal collateralization. This is something that came up with the Entebbe airport issue. This idea that they require a large offshore collateral agreement for a fund to be there just in case the loan goes south, they can then draw from this uh, collateralized escrow account, if you will. The resource for infrastructure deals are not things that are done by the U.S. and Europe. And the insistence, of course, as we've talked about throughout this program, on the strict non-disclosure clauses in contracts like the one for the SGR in Kenya. Now, on this point, we have another comment from the Hoover Institute's webinar on China's sharp power. This one is from Zambian anti-corruption activist Ruben Lifuka, who is, by the way, also the vice chair of the board of Transparency International. And he says that China's practices are not helping to improve governance, both in his country and across Africa. The problem is China would like to extend its commercial interests in countries like Zambia, but playing by their own rules away from home. So not adhering to public procurement procedures because of the nature of the contracts that are entered to not being open and transparent to allow for this freedom of expression and the scrutiny that civil society, the media, and others would like to have if they had greater information on the nature of the contracts, etc. So it would like to participate in our economies, but on their terms, under their rules, and not necessarily the local rules. Now, if you look at the fight against corruption in China and what is happening elsewhere, I see a, a, a serious policy incoherency here. On one hand, we're being told China is fighting corruption. And one ex expects that the state-owned enterprises, which meet all the requirements of uh, the Chinese government, including the aid code, whatever it is that they're put in place, will do the same in foreign jurisdiction. However, China's well-known policy is that of non-interference in domestic affairs of recipient countries. That, to me, suggests that China will be less than inclined to take an active role in fighting corruption. Right by that policy, it is not quite inclined. This hands-off approach, uh, seemingly, just makes China not uh, too keen to get its hands dirty in dealing with domestic affairs of Zambia or helping Zambia deal uh, with uh, the corruption that uh, we're grappling with, not just in the construction sector, but elsewhere. But what is also worrying to me is that there seems to be this notion that the Chinese companies, like others, would say, well, we are corrupt because we found a corrupt environment. 
But a corrupt environment should never serve as a justification for one's own corrupt behavior. If, so, if Chinese companies are living up to higher standards of probity in the way they do business, this needs to be demonstrated in the norms that they bring to their workspaces, in the way they deal with government officials, in the way they compete for projects, avoiding collusion, avoiding all the unfair business practices. But we're not seeing that. It's almost like going with the flow because we found a debt environment, so there's nothing wrong with us being part of uh, this environment and not standing out and being that beacon of hope that we can clean up the sector. Ovigwe, I mentioned that China has a double standard when it comes to sanctions. They don't like it when the U.S. does it, but they don't mind doing it themselves. And Rubin talks about a double standard on the question of corruption, that at home, Xi Jinping has been really adamant from day one since he took office back in 2012. Corruption has been the thing and cracking down on corruption, but yet overseas, it's hands off. What's your reaction to Rubin's statement there? Yeah, I, I've said to a large extent that I agree, I agree with him on the issue of non-interference and also on the issue of uh, gov- government themselves, uh, the corrupt environment not being a justification for, for corruption. That is very, very true. I mean, for someone like me, I grew up in southern Nigeria, particularly you know, with the oil-rich you know, delta, and I saw corruption and collusion, everything that Ruben described with the oil companies. In fact, till date, we are still taking some of those companies to court, and there was a large you know, uh, victory over Shell that was, that was announced uh, last year. So when people say China doesn't play by the rules, I often laugh and say, well, maybe the rules that they are not familiar with, because some of the, some of the practices that so-called, you know, the rules of, of the trade is, is, is to just work with the environment and see how you can, you know, manipulate your, your way through, you know, institutions and structures that, 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 you can, that you can manipulate. And that is very much by the rules. I mean, the unwritten rules that we might not like, but that's just the, the, the way, you know, the game is the game. However, on the issue of corruption, where I agree with Ruben is the fact that if we as a continent with all our countries and all of the problems and we know for a fact that corruption is a major, major problem, then we have the responsibility to hold ourselves to account and hold all our partners to account in equal measure. Because if we do that, then it becomes not only better for us as, as societies or as countries, but it shows our partners that we respect ourselves. And of, for that basis, and on that basis, they must respect us. If you catch maybe illegal Chinese miners, for instance, and you, you, know, you uh, p- publish, you know, write an article, we've seen it several times in, in Nigeria, you don't see in the government of China come to say, oh, no, you, you, know, you have to, you cannot you know, prosecute our citizens, blah, blah, blah. They get punished. And very often, we, you even hear within China that people you repatriate back to, you know, to China, they even get punished there even, even more because they want to save face. They know that they are, they are hanging on a very thin thread in many jurisdictions, in many countries. And they, they don't want the bad publicity. They can't deal with the bad press. It's not good for their image. It's not good for you know, the soft power that they're trying to develop. So if, that even gives Africa an opportunity to, if, to put China in a position where it holds itself to a higher standard and, and practice you know, in African countries. But to achieve that, we have to first demonstrate that we respect our own laws, we respect our own people, and we respect our own national interests by holding ourselves to, 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 to account. Because when you do that, then you cannot, you, you cannot come into my country and, and, and you disrespect me. So 
I think Ruben has a very strong point, and that, that for me, it's something that, you know, is a conversation that, to a large extent, African countries, African citizens need to have, you know, w- you know w- with themselves. But Ovigwe, I will, I'll just challenge you on one point there, because if you've yeah. been following what we've been writing lately in this controversy that's been going on in Zimbabwe, where a group of 27 civil society organizations have called out Chinese mining companies for what they claim are abuses of Mm. power, of the forced relocation of people, of labor abuses and lack of environmental impact assessments. The Chinese embassy in Harare and Xinhua and the state media apparatus have come at them like a ton of bricks, and they are firing back on all cylinders. So it's a real interesting dynamic of what's going on in Zimbabwe when civil society does mount pressure on the Chinese. They do fight back. Yeah, of course they will. They will, they will fight back, and they, they should fight back. But, but let facts be stronger than narrative. If we have the facts as civil society or as citizens, then let the facts speak. I know it is. Um, it, it, it's very easy, you know, to to take up issues. I can wake up tomorrow morning and and just say, oh, this mining company in my community is not obeying ESG, you know, regulations, and just start a case. But at the end of the day, what where is the evidence? Let's look at the evidence. And and I really like the fact that even in my own country, Nigeria, when we, when there was so much hysteria around debt and how much money was was owed to China, and then the DMO, that's the Debt Management Management Office of Nigeria, published the figures, and that immediately destroyed to a large extent. Fantastic. All, that yes, was. all of, all of all of the 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 narrative around it. You know, in the same thing again, we we saw with Representative Ichilema, he has come, he has published the figures. And you see, it's if for me, from my perspective, I think it's very easy to bust these narratives out, to prove the narratives right by just putting out the figures. With the only, with the only, with the only weapon that you have is just to put out, you know, to bring out all of the evidence. So whether in Zimbabwe or in Kenya or you know any any African country, Nigeria, Ghana. Let it not be narratives based. Let it be fact based. If we have if we have problems with the environment, if we have problems with lending, if we have problems, let the figures and the facts be the ultimate decider. Kobus, let's hear from you. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, I actually don't have that much to add, but like you know, kind of, a, it's 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 really important. The you know, I. I uh, the, the the issue that like that Vigre mentioned of of soft power um there, there is a, a, an issue here of african soft power as well or then you know kind of a, a lack of soft power in the sense that the you know if there is this, this narrative that africa is such a corrupt place to do business and that to do business there that you have no choice but to be corrupt that itself becomes a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy um and you know the so so if there were some kind of of a very proactive kind of prosecution of the african officials who were involved in corrupt practices with foreign with foreign investors you know, if if they if 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 the kind of full weight of the law came at them, um, then that also sends its own message. Um, you know, so so the 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 situation isn't only that that this that these this kind of information should be disclosed. Um, you know, that is very important, but there should also be some kind of some kind of like follow up of that. You know, kind of to 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 pull these people out of power or to you know to pull them out of society in some kind of way. And that frequently we don't see in Africa. 
African in African countries and South Africa is, is case number one. You know, kind of it's it's been incredibly difficult to get um, to get the Zuma era officials and and former President Zuma himself actually in court. You know, kind of it's it's been it's they have fantastic legal teams. They throw like one one kind of diversionary tactic after another at the courts, and and it is this kind of very under resourced kind of court system that needs to kind of you know, kind of catch up with people who have corruption-fueled legal help. And it's it's a tough process, you know, kind of so 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 in, in some kind of way, you know, kind of for Africa to be consistently kind of proactive in, in coming after their own officials who are corrupt, that would in the end also have this kind of build a form of African soft power in the end, you know. Um, but yeah, no, that's very, very idealistic. Yeah, I think you're right. It's it, the idealism, and this is what we hear on webinars where analysts and academics talk in a very you know abstract way but I'll tell you as somebody who's done business here in Southeast Asia as a small to medium sized enterprise who doesn't have any leverage over uh, a client for example who literally will say to you if you don't send me a commission uh, I'll take my business elsewhere and you have no other choice if you want your business to move forward than to pay those commissions so yes the biggest companies in the world have the leverage to say we're not going to engage in corruption but when you are not the major corporations, so maybe not the state-owned enterprises, but a mid to small enterprise, you have no choice but to pay commissions because that's just how you get things done. And, and, and that's been my experience here in Southeast Asia. It's been my experience in the Congo as well. So I think it's really easy to say you shouldn't be corrupt. But again, when the environment around you is that, you oftentimes have no choice if you want to get business done. That, that's just been my personal experience. And, and just to follow up on that, the, you know, kind of, yeah, you're right. Like you, it's, it's much harder for smaller corporations and the larger they get, the more empowered they get. And then they, they can say, no, we don't, we don't participate in corruption. But then the other option is then to participate in lobbying, you know, and to use massive, massive amounts of lobbying money to essentially shape the legal system around their business priorities you know so to and 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 that of course is in you know kind of in you know depending on how you do it it's completely legal but it still is extremely problematic and and you know kind of to 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 somehow kind of like isolate that from the from the the the, the wider discussion about corruption is really disingenuous you know because it's essentially okay it's corruption if you're small and weak but but when you when you reach a certain scale then it's completely legit you know, it's it's just yeah, it's just not right. So I just need to apologize in advance to everybody listening to the show that we're going to go a little bit longer than we normally do, just because I've got three more great sound bites and they're a little bit on the long side. But we, again, I really want you guys to hear the breath instead of a ten second sound bite or a fifteen second sound bite to literally let these people kind of express themselves. So we're going to go a little bit longer than we normally do. Kobus and I will not do our typical end of show brief at the at the end because I want to make sure that we respect your time and we get these sound bites in. Let's go back to the United States and we're going to go to New York this time. And we've heard a lot of bad takes as I talked about earlier about the, the the Chinese engagement in Africa from the U.S., from U.S. scholars, from U.S. analysts, and from the U.S. media. And so it's important that we also hear a more nuanced explanation for why Americans in particular feel the way they do about the Chinese in Africa. And again, because the U.S.-China dynamic is a very important phenomenon, that it is relevant. So the U.S. is not just any old country here. They do have a big impact on, on, on what's going on. So for that, let's go to a webinar 
that was held on January 20th by the New York-based nonprofit Network 2020 that featured an absolutely fascinating discussion between former Liberian Public Works Minister Jude Moore, an old friend of ours on the program, and Jennifer Hillman, who's a senior fellow uh, for trade and international political economy at the Council on Foreign Relations. If you're not familiar with Jennifer's work, she's becoming an increasingly important analyst for research on the implications of China's Belt and Road on the U.S., and she wrote with a number of her colleagues a very important paper on the subject last March that I recommend you check out. I've put a link to that in the show notes. But for our purposes today, here are her four concerns. And again, it's a little bit of a longer soundbite, so bear with me, but it's really interesting. She lays out four concerns about lending infrastructure and the adverse impact of the Belt and Road. The problem for the United States and the rest of the world is not the existence of the Belt and Road Initiative itself. Again, I, I would certainly agree with everything Judy has just said. Part of the reason why the Belt and Road Initiative got as far as it did is because China was filling a vacuum uh, that the United States and others had created. We had and largely and to some degree the multilateral development banks and others had largely walked away from funding a lot of this hard infrastructure. So, and again, China, it's not the existence of the Belt and Road because it is definitely providing very much needed um, infrastructure in many places. The problem for the United States, and I think for the rest of the world, is the way in which China is going about it. And again, I'm going to just cite a couple of things that are particularly worrying. First is that it is undermining macroeconomic stability because it is increasing the likelihood that a debt crisis is going to materialize over the coming years because so many of these loans are at you know on commercial terms carrying you know relatively high interest rates um, into countries that are already relatively impoverished and they're funding fairly economically questionable projects. Um, that may or may not end up, you know, creating or generating much return, at least not for many, many years to come. So that's one clear concern. The second one is obviously that China is now subsidizing very privileged market access for its own state-owned and, and sort of non-market-oriented Chinese companies, which means it will be triply hard for U.S. and other companies to try to come in and compete with those um, because they're not going to be able to match either the speed or the price. They may be better on quality on a lot of other things, but there's a real concern about this degree of market access. Thirdly, it has definitely been able to allow China to lock countries into these kind of Chinese ecosystems, uh, particularly by pressing its technology and these preferred technical standards on all of these BRI recipients. I mean, it used to be in the telecommunications area. It was a little bit of kind of plug and play. You could buy one component from one place and another component from another, and you could build your own telecommunication systems. No longer. I mean, the standards are very much Huawei and ZTE standards. So you again locked others out and made it clear that it's not reliance on, on China just for the first installation. You are you're locking yourself into sticking with that Chinese ecosystem for you know, sort of a very long time. It is clearly making it harder for the World Bank and other traditional lenders to insist on the high standards that they typically do insist on in terms of transparency, good governance, environmental impact assessments. You know, a whole series of rigorous environmental and social impact assessments are completely being ignored, and it makes it harder now for the World Bank to come back in and ask for those high standards if everyone can turn to China. 
you know, and again, and lastly, is that it does leave countries more susceptible to Chinese political pressure because of the dominant Chinese presence in these markets. Wow. There you go, Ovigwe. That's a lot of American anxiety all packed up into three minutes. Give us your take. Yeah, well, on macroeconomics um, stability that she mentioned, we, that's definitely a concern because one, if, if, if the economies are, are not growing fast enough, issue of repayment you know, is very likely to be a problem. How do you solve that offer us a better alternative? Because so what should we do? We shouldn't, we shouldn't build roads. We shouldn't build you know, bridges. We shouldn't build harbors. We can't, and that's what was Cobos was even alluding to earlier. Earlier on, the, there is this the fear of China. Their fear of China is higher than their fear of of their recognition of underdevelopment in Africa. So it's we can we should be okay with underdevelopment just so they should, they should so that we, they shouldn't have to worry too much about Chinese influence. Number two, number three, and number four are not African problems. Those are American problems. Issue of whether they have you know. Uh, political influence or whether they, you know, we are being locked into some form of uh, situation where American companies can compete. That's not really our problem in Nigerian or African problem. It's it's our problem in, it's American problem in the sense that those profits and those businesses, they, they, they don't really, they don't really, they're not domiciled here, they don't pay, well, they might pay taxes, but it's, from a political standpoint, it's not necessarily our problem. Where I do agree with what she was saying, is, is this, we don't want to live in a world where weak and fragile states or struggling states like we have a ton of in the continent of Africa do not have options. That is a nightmare if you don't have power or if you're a weak state in, in the international system. So the priority for us as Africans should be to have a system that is truly loaded with options, whether for financing roles or for finance for PPPs, or structural financing or concessional financing, whatever the model, we want options, simple and short. I share her, her, her concern about the the, the possibility of, um, of of countries be, again kind of losing their options, right? Particularly around around kind of IT and, and, and internet provision. Um, but you know what, what what we've seen in, in in tracking kind of Huawei on the ground in in places like South Africa is like if if you if they're operating in in a in an environment like in South Africa where you know kind of where there there is there is competition there. Legislation and there is, um, you know, the, the, it's 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 you know the the, the governments are, are interested in you know in, in having an open market and 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 fostering competition. Then we see, you know, for example, South African telecoms. They use a lot of Huawei stuff, but they also are at pains when you speak with them that they don't want to be dependent only on Huawei. You know, so in that sense, they're they're really echoing what she's saying. But it, but but in in practice, they have been able to kind of to mix Huawei stuff and and and, and other stuff. And I mean, you know, I, I'm sure kind of the in in certain countries and in certain um, in certain projects that that might not be true. You know, kind of they may they uh, you. You know, going to face a lot of pressure to to go to, to go only with Chinese standards, but but we've seen you know kind of in, on on the level of, for example, cell phone provision that 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 is what the companies do. They do mix you know Western stuff and Korean stuff and Chinese stuff together in their networks. That's what they prefer to do. So 
Jennifer was talking with Jude, and we're going to close the rest of our show with two long sound bites from Jude Moore. Jude, again, if you're not familiar with him, he is the former Liberian Public Works Minister and now a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development in Washington. Very outspoken on China Africa issues and on infrastructure topics in particular, given his background. Jude makes the point that the U.S. and Europe may not like what China is doing in Africa, but from an African point of view, and Ovigwe, this speaks to what you were talking about. Some of it, this is our problem, and some of this is not our problem. He says the presence of the Chinese on the continent is forcing the legacy powers like the U.S. and Europe to take the kind of action that they otherwise wouldn't do. I think that in a way, China has won the argument with the West. And the argument was that we need to finance infrastructure because Global Gateway and B3W are always presented as alternatives to what the Chinese are doing. And you have to remember that if if they had been financing infrastructure from the beginning, there wouldn't have been even space for the Chinese to arise and do that. So that's a good thing. The second thing is that we're going to see, and we're beginning to see that. So for example, before the war started in Ethiopia, there was a big sale in licenses. And there were two two main competitors for those licenses. One was MTN out of South Africa, and MTN was backed by the, uh, the Silk Road Fund from China. And one was Vodafone out of Kenya, and it was backed by the USDFC. So all of a sudden, we're beginning to see a competition now in terms of providing financing that did not exist before. If that had occurred, say, I don't know, five years ago, it would have simply been the Chinese component that would be there. But now we have real competition for that. We're also seeing that U.S. firms are now building data centers across Africa. Initially, a lot of that stuff was being done by Huawei, but we're seeing Raxio, we're seeing Digital Realty, we're seeing Equinix, huge U.S. firms taking large positions in data. And so, and, and the final thing is almost every African tech unicorn has used U.S. VCs, right? It's U.S. money going into them that, that, that gave them that valuation. So I think B3W and and Global Gateway can be competitors in certain sectors, and we're already beginning to see that. And that is a good problem to have. As an African, I want to be able to go to the market for money to finance and have three competing infrastructure financing funds out of which I can, and I can pit them against each other and get what's best. So I think it's a good start. Hopefully, we will see some announcements soon of real physical projects. So Jude made so many great points in this webinar. I really recommend that you go and check it out again. I'll I'll put the links to all of this in the show notes. I, I couldn't play all of them just because we'd be here for the next three hours and it would be dreadfully boring. But let me just play one final point that Jude made, and then we'll get Ovigue's and Kobus's take on it. The fact is that China's lending to countries that otherwise wouldn't have access to the capital markets. So for all of the whining and whinging that we hear about Chinese development financing that goes on in Washington and elsewhere, they are providing a service that the U.S., the Europeans, the Japanese, the Koreans just aren't willing to do. And, And that is something that's really important. So from the point of view of the African policymaker that's looking at their options, Jude makes the point, and Kobus has said this over and over again, Oftentimes, it's the Chinese or nothing. China is the largest bilateral lender. For example, if if Liberia or Togo wanted to borrow from the U.S. government, there is really no mechanism for the U.S. to do government-to-government lending. You might get money through the World Bank or the African Development Bank where the U.S. contributes, but where the U.S. is directly lending to countries, that's something the U.S. has stopped doing for a while. What China, I think between 
2019 and 2024, 64% of interest payments to bilateral lenders across the world were going to China. So China was lending to countries with weak credit history. There are only about 33 African sovereigns who have a sovereign rating who can go to the financial markets and issue debt. And so China is lending to these countries with weak credits, right? And so what China ended up doing was building those contracts in such a way that it got repaid. One of them Jennifer spoke about was establishing escrow accounts in banks where China had control. So for example, if if there was a mine that was given in this infrastructure for minerals deal, that mining project will have an escrow account in a Chinese controlled bank. And when payments went, they went to that account first. Right. So these were some stringent means that China put in there, but sometimes they were over the top. For example, the Kenyan government is in court today because activists are suing the Kenyan government to show the terms of agreement for the Mombasa Rail. And up to today, it hasn't been produced. So I think in a lot of instances, these agreements are not a deal. These agreements will probably, if there were options on the table, most countries would probably ask for a bit different deal. And I think the demand from the Chinese side would be different, but simply because of the absence of this. And, and quickly, before I stop, it's like between now and mid-century, half of the 2 billion increase in global population is expected to occur in Africa. As it stands, the population of the continent is already putting stress on existing infrastructure. Africa is going to continue to need infrastructure. And if there is no alternative, then it doesn't matter how crappy the terms are that the Chinese present. That's what's going to happen. If my house is on fire and my neighbor shows up, I'm not going to be like, hey, that's dirty water you're using to put out my fire. Like, you know, if he's the only one who shows up to put out the fire, then, then that's what I'm going to accept. So I think we need alternatives. We need the World Bank and the multilateral development banks to begin to finance infrastructure, hard infrastructure. Again, we need bilaterals to finance hard infrastructure. Jude just has a, a wonderful way of making this so accessible and so understandable and to the point and really articulating a strong African voice on this. Ovigwe, what is your take and your thoughts on Jude's comments? In fact, I was nodding my head in agreement all through you know, uh, his comments because I strongly agree with the issue of options uh, and the urgency. Now, that urgency, I think, is really, really uh, missing from the conversation because, w- w- for instance, let's even go back. Let's go. Let's let's not go back too far. Let's look at the recent events happening in West Africa with all of the coups. Every single country's military or in every single situation, the military justifies its coup by saying underdevelopment, poverty, corruption, underdevelopment, poverty, corruption. Maybe in Mali, for instance, and Burkina Faso, they throw in the issue of security. But a lot of the insecurity is fueled by long-standing underdevelopment in areas where people have not even seen a third road for decades. In fact, they probably never even had one since time you know, began. So when governments in West Africa are saying we, we have to take collective action to you know, improve the situation in you know, respect for democracy and rule of law and all of those very important things, one of one of the major aspects that is missing from these uh, these uh, uh, you know, pronouncement coming from ECOWAS is that they have to input in accountability. I mean, accountability here is substantive accountability, delivering public services, delivering you know housing, delivering you know you know on roads, hospitals, education. 
But they're not going to say that because they know many of them don't even have that in their priorities. And those who do have this problem of financing, how are they going to pay for these things? I don't think any government in Africa, no matter how corrupt, no matter how irresponsible, if, you, if, they, if they know that they can go to the U.S. tomorrow and say, see, we need a full, for instance, in Nigeria, a full Northeast Development Plan because we've come to realize with study after study that it is under development that is the core of the insecurity and violence we're facing in the Lake Chad Basin. We want to maybe finance really massive irrigation projects for, for in the Lake Chad, for Nigeria, for Cameroon, for Niger, you know, for, uh, for Chad. Are they going to get the money? Very unlikely they are going to get the money, money for that. So the urgency and so another urgency, the, 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 the fact that many people in the, in the West don't understand that the development is not just about, you know, um, can you repay the loan? Can you, uh, is it, what, what percentage are you lending? What are, th th those are financial issues. Those are economic bubble questions. For many of these African countries, it's about the legitimacy. It's about the issue of you know accountability. It's about the issue of them being able to look at them, their, their citizens, and said we are able to do this and we're able to do that. So, and the, because government cannot point to hard infrastructure, and I remember I was having this town hall in uh, in um, Kanu in, in Nigeria where we're talking about the Kanu railway uh, uh, railway and all of that and how it's going to improve. You know, development and many of the farmers are actually very much in agreement. One farmer, and this is so interesting because this is if someone who is not very educated and asked a very brilliant question. He said, "I can go out to the street now and touch all of the all of the the railway that were built with Chinese financing. All of these Western companies that are talking uh, uh, multilateral are talking about World Bank, IMF. We owe them so much money." Where is the railway will be to those monies? Where is the road will be to those monies? Where is the you know the schools or the bridges or the ports will be to those money? And that's a very important question because before China came into this into the scene, for many for many years we were still lending money from, from the IMF, but those were to balance budgets. They were not using them to build anything. So many people know that we owe the IMF, we owe the World Bank, but they can't point to anything in their immediate environment that we use with those to build with those monies. So for China, even if we have a problem uh, or some problems in terms of the deals or you know, the power you know, in, uh, in, uh, inequality, people can actually go outside to touch what they, what they built with those loans. But you can't do that for, you know, for the multilaterals. And, that, and that's a major, major you know, indictment on the arguments that they are making. Yes, thousand percent agree. Yeah, this is what kind of like really frustrates me frequently about about kind of Western Western responses to, for example, the the crisis in Ethiopia. You know, um, and admittedly, like frequently, these Western countries have limited have limited tools to to exert pressure. But the way that, for example, that the Biden administration, the first thing that they did was to was to take Ethiopia off off Agoa. Um, the only thing that's going to get Ethiopia through its crisis is some form of some form of development, right? Kind of like so much of the, of conflict and, and and kind of resource struggles in Africa has to do with this kind of like pervasive under like systemic underdevelopment. 
And, you know, so, so in that sense, that is the flip side of all of this, all of this kind of like Western complaints about China coddling dictatorships and willing to do, do, do business with these horrible governments, which, sure, you know, true. But at the same time, the only way to get into a better place is through some form of development. And, and, and therefore, you frequently have to do business while it's still in crisis, you know, to be able to, to, to say, you know, kind of like the Biden administration does like, oh, there's this, this horrible crisis happening. So we need to withdraw all, you know, kind of all opportunities for, for this country to, to make enough money to kind of to get themselves out of this crisis. You know, it's, it's, there, there's a lot of this kind of like preoccupation with, with domestic ideas of what, what is right, um, rather than with kind of pragmatic actual attempts to try and solve the this, this situation. Um, and, and then frequently so much of, of the crisis, so, 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 so much of the criticism of China, the flip side of that criticism is frequently to do with this kind of crazy pragmatism that China, that China works with, which is frequently kind of really problematic. But, it, but it, in lots of ways, it also brings something to the table which allows some form of future kind of alternative to develop, you know, um, which, which frequently the, you know, kind of the, the other alternatives don't. Okay, we are well over our time, but I wanted to play all of these sound bites. We did a little bit of a different type of show today to take advantage of Ovigwe's breadth of knowledge on all these different issues. I, it was great to be able to dive into this the way that we did, simply because so much of the current narratives that, again, that we hear coming out of the U.S., the U.K., Europe, elsewhere, even in Africa, places like uh, Uganda with the terrible reporting that came out of the Daily Monitor on the reporting on the Entebbe airport issue. It's really nice to be able to dive in with some really thoughtful people like we had in the sound bites, and, of course, with Ovigwe and, and Kobus, as always. Ovigwe, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule in Addis Ababa. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing, you are very active on Twitter. Where can they find you? Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Always a pleasure to join you guys. Um, they can follow me on, on Twitter and LinkedIn with my name at Ovigwe Iguegu. That's O-V-I-G-W-E E-G-U-E-G-U. Kobus, thank you so much for joining us. We don't do this very often, but remind everybody what's your Twitter account these days. I, 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 I inadvisedly years ago chose Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. <laughs> It's it's yeah, it's so random, okay. And then uh, our Twitter account is China AFR Project. So we we have everything that's going on there. We're putting all of our stories up there. We put some quotes. We put a bunch of news. So go ahead and follow that. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition. Until then, I'm Eric Olander for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg. Thank you so much for listening. continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com. 